So this is what I consider to be the most important single class because everybody's going to get confirmed. Um, and uh, you can't understand confirmation without baptism. And you can't understand baptism without understanding what a sacrament is. So that's what this evening's class is all about. The sacraments, confirmation, and baptism. Okay, so the very first thing we have to do is we have to understand what a sacrament is. And I think you'll find this really intuitive. But to begin with, let's, let's go with, with the definition. And I have, in fact, two definitions for you. Here's the old-fashioned definition that was taken from the Baltimore Catechism. A sacrament is an external sign instituted by Christ, which gives grace. All right, that's the old definition. <clears throat> Here's a new definition. It comes from our current catechism. An efficacious sign of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. Believe it or not, those two things say the exact same thing. The second one is just a little bit longer. All right, so um, let's begin by... uh, well, let's, let's begin by taking a look at the word sacrament. Uh, and again, if I repeat myself or I have, have repeated myself, I apologize. Um, but the word sacrament means pledge. It means promise. That's all it means. Um, uh, in, the, um, in the Roman Senate, they, they gave each other IOUs, and they were called sacramentum. All it means is a promise. All it means is a pledge. But what is pledged? What's promised? What's promised? God's grace is what's promised. Can you see grace? Can you feel grace? I, don't, I would argue that you couldn't. I would argue that you couldn't. And I believe that's an important thing to understand. There are some times when after having received a sacrament or have to set a prayer, you will have a certain sense. I don't know, maybe you'll feel closer to God. Um, but there's plenty of times and this is really important you'll, you'll pray, you'll receive the Eucharist you'll receive sacraments and you will feel nothing and I would say that is normal because grace is not something that you necessarily can feel at all Okay, but what is, what is the sacrament? a sacrament is a promise that when this ceremony is celebrated whether you feel anything or not whether you see anything or not Jesus promises that his grace is given. That's what a sacrament is. Okay, so every single sacrament involves something visible. Something you can see, something you can touch, something you can feel, uh, or sometimes all of the above. And that actually is because that's our nature. You might not ever stop to consider this, but if I asked, what are you? Not a question people often develop much of an answer to, but what are you? You are, as a human person, a body and a soul. You're not a a soul trapped in a body. You're not a a body that's accidentally together with a spirit. I think most people these days would recognize that there's a spiritual dimension to them. Most people would recognize that. Um, What people often, especially in our own era in the last decade or so especially they don't recognize that their body is not an accident it's who they are you are a male soul or a female soul and your body is just an expression of that Um, men and women are different right down to their core and um, and they express that difference 
and even they're raised in the exact same house. My little sister raised in the house with two brothers. Um, all the same experiences, same places, totally different because um, she's got a female soul. Okay? So, but you are, you're not just a body and a soul separate, you're a body and a soul together. And so, well, we've got this idea that, well, not our idea, it came to us from Christ, that our Lord nourishes our body and our soul and does it together. And he does it by giving us his grace through these visible signs. Uh, and this is what a sacrament is. Now, you already, I bet you every single person here in this room has on them right now something that's like a sacrament. I bet you have a medal that means something to you or a picture that means something to you or a ring that means something to you or maybe you have a souvenir back home that means something to you. Um, personally, on my desk right now, I've got a rock and that rock means something to me. Nobody has any idea what it is, but it means something to me. It's a physical thing, but it means more than itself. It, it carries a spiritual significance, right? And our, we have these things in our lives. We go, you go take a trip, you buy a souvenir, right? Um, um, uh, you want to express your warmth, your affection with somebody, what do you do? You buy them a gift or you send them a card. It means a lot more than just sending them an email. Why? Well, because we are body and spirit. Well, God's the one who made us. Okay? God knows our nature. And what we say is that Jesus himself came up with these visible things that give us invisible grace. Um, you know, I've got here in, in, in your notes that medals are like sacraments, trophies are like sacraments. Um, you know, if, you're, if, you win the, if, you, if you're the fastest runner in the Olympic Games... It's kind of not official until they give you that medal, right? Um, you've seen what they do after they win the gold medal. They, they bite it mm -hmm. right? because they want to make sure that it's real gold. They want to make sure, of course, it's not real gold, but it's still they do it anyway. <clears throat> but um, in and of itself, what's its value? I don't know. Uh, what are they going for on eBay? There's probably somebody somewhere who's selling their gold medal. has a value. Uh, Super Bowl ring. There's almost no Super Bowl that's ever been played. You can't buy the ring for it. Somebody somewhere selling it. Because these, a lot of these guys, unfortunately, they're not very financially astute, and they got this incredibly valuable hunk of metal, and they're in debt, so they sell it. Um, uh, a Super Bowl ring, they average about $15,000, $16,000. That's all they get. That's if, if it was a player's ring, if it was a coach's ring, or any other staff ring, they're worth even less. They're worth their melt value. Mm. Um, I learned this from watching Pawn Stars, <laughs> but um, but uh, but um, but but what's its value intrinsically? It's very very different from what its value is together with what it means to the one who owns it. So it's a, physical things carry spiritual meaning, right? There was a uh, um, there was a, a there was a David Letterman back when David Letterman was on. Everybody heard of David Letterman? Um, he wrote a book when. And this picture of this guy standing, showing off this trophy. And the caption below it was, here's my cousin John, one of the many trophies he purchased secondhand. And it's a joke because well, it doesn't have any value unless it... But you see how a sacrament is a natural thing for us. Make sense? Okay, I think it's very important to understand this. So um, I went to a Protestant work camp. Who's ever heard of work camp? I had a cousin go to one once. Work camp is a week-long youth event in which you work on projects... 
and, and you pray at night, right? And it's kind of fun, and it's kind of prayer, and it's kind of service, and the kids love it, just love it. I have to work here my cousin but um, um, in the evening at this Protestant work camp, there was this prayer night. And they had these little stations set up all around the gym. And at one station, you would go to a canvas, and you would dip your finger into red paint, and you would write your sins. And it was like it was Jesus' blood, and it was like you were forgiven. And another station, they had a, that sounds kind of silly, but they had a fan. And you'd sit in front of the fan, and it was supposed to be like you're feeling the Holy Spirit. Um, another one there was a, a box full of nails and hammers, and you'd hammer a nail into a, and it was supposed to be like, you know, this is, you know, this is what Jesus went through. And, and I thought, gosh, they're trying to create visible things to capture invisible spiritual realities, but Jesus has already done that for us. It's just that when Jesus did it, he guaranteed that he gave us grace. What does grace mean? What's the word grace mean? Everybody remember? God's life in your soul. Very important definition. Because that's what sacraments give you. That's the package that they deliver. God's life in your soul. That's what a sacrament gives you. Um, So this visible thing delivers God's life. And who came up with it? Who came up with the sacraments? It's very important that we understand this. The church didn't invent them. Now, there's a lot of pressure out there that people really want us to believe the church invented them. Because if the church invented them, the church can change them. Um, we get in lots of trouble in the world. Lots of trouble. Because we can't change them because they're not ours. How many commandments are there? Ten. Can there ever be eleven? Can there ever be eight? Why? Because who, who, came, who, who gave them to us? God gave them to us. We say the exact same thing about the sacraments. God gave them to us. It's just that it's a New Testament reality, not an Old Testament reality. So I say Jesus gave them to us, not just, it's not God because it's not an Old Testament reality, but Jesus is more specific, a New Testament reality. Um, and because Jesus gave them to us, I can't change them. And we'll get to this in just a second, but like I can't ever use anything but wheat bread and wine of the grape for Mass. If I could, I would. I'd rather have coffee and donuts. Wouldn't that be great? Hand you out a donut. Body of Christ, oh, God, this is great. i got to come. This is a great church. Right? i got to come here every week. And here's the blood of Christ and a nice hot cup of coffee. I, was, I, had, I knew a friend who was uh, doing mission work in Kenya. And, um, and, you know, the Kenyan people, they had some tradition where they drank the blood of a gazelle. We'll get to this in later classes. I think this example comes up. Um, and, and, and he really wanted to use the gazelle blood in the mass, because it would mean so much to them. They've been doing this for you know a hundred thousand years, or whatever. No matter how much it means to them, you have to use wine, and you have to use yeah. But that came from the Middle East. I'm sorry, but that's where it, that's that's what we have to use. It's not my, the church. The sacraments are instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church, but the church is not the master of the sacraments. A couple sacraments that get us in lots of trouble these days. Number one, priesthood. It's not my idea that women can't be ordained priests. It's not my idea, and I can't change it. Put me up against a wall, you know, threaten me with death. Do you believe this? Yes, I do. Quick prayer, quick act of contrition first, but before you shoot, yes, I do. Okay. Um, another one that gets us into trouble these days, matrimony. I can't make marriage two men. I can't make marriage two women or any other combination. I don't care how popular it is. And we might pay the big price for this, and if you're a Catholic, you're going to pay the price for it too. 
because it's really popular at the moment, but it's not real. It's not my sacrament. Jesus gave it to us. It can't mean anything other than that. Um, there's a, a, some kind of visible, visible thing that's used in every sacrament. Oil is used for confirmation. Oil is used for anointing of the sick. There's currently no controversy in anointing somebody with oil. But if there were, we'd still do it anyway because we can't, we didn't invent it, we didn't change it. So where did sacraments come from? Christ, okay? It's very important. They didn't come from the church. And we say that Christ gave us seven of these. Baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, matrimony, holy orders, penance, and anointing of the sick. Who instituted each one of these? Christ did. We're going to go over them all, right? Baptism and confirmation this evening. There's birth, growth, and death. Baptism, confirmation, and anointing. There's our relationship to one another and to God. Matrimony and holy orders. There's food and there's medicine. Eucharist and penance. But in all of these, every we say Christ instituted them. And they give us grace. Grace is, what's once again, God's life in your soul. So here, what's the sacrament? A visible thing? Comes from Christ. Gives us grace. Did Jesus give us the Our Father? Yes. Why isn't the Our Father a sacrament? It's not a visible thing. It's not a visible thing. What's the visible thing in the Our Fathers? There's nothing visible there. It's just a prayer. You can say it in your head. Um, but it comes from Christ and gives us grace, but it's not a visible thing. It's not one of the sacraments. Now, um, a couple important things to understand about sacraments before we move on. First is the way that sacraments work. They work in two ways. Here's the first way. I've got it here in your notes in Latin, ex opere operato. Ex opere operato is a fancy way of saying that sacraments work because every time a sacrament is celebrated, we believe Christ himself is the one doing the work. Your priest can be a scallywag. I hope he's not a scallywag, but he can be a scallywag. And if he is a validly ordained priest who uses the right words and the right does it just in the way Jesus gave it to us and has his will, you know, to, to do it in accordance with the mind of the church, even though he's a big sinner, Christ still acts through him. Now, that's not to say, I don't want to get off track, that's not to say it doesn't matter whether your priest is a scallywag or not. The sacrament works because Christ works. Um, the prayer, that's a better prayer or a worse prayer, depending whether your priest is a close friend of God or not a close friend of God. So does it matter whether your priest is a saint? It does matter. His prayer is far, far better, but the sacrament is exactly the same. You could go to Jesus himself, or you could go to a validly ordained priest, and the baptism is precisely the same, because Jesus is the one who works. That's what we believe. Ex opere operato. It's a fancy way of saying you can't screw it up if you do it the way Jesus told us to do it. It's, a, it's, a, it's your guarantee. There was a heresy back along the days in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in the history of the church um, that said that it did matter whether your priest was holy or not, and people would seek out the holiest priest because they wanted the most grace, and, and who's to say who the holiest priest was, and it caused a lot of trouble, and that's where the church had to define this. It doesn't, that Jesus is the one who acts, okay? But that doesn't mean that you're just a passive recipient. Sacraments are not magic. The second way a sacrament works is ex opere operantis, and that means by the work being done, okay? So you go to Mass, because you go to Mass, and you're used to going to Mass, and you always go to Mass. God bless you, that's a good thing. 
but you're probably not going to get as much out of that Eucharist as the lady across the, the hall, the aisle there, whose child is in the intensive care unit and is praying with all of her might for God to come and help her. She's going to drink more deeply of the wellsprings of God's grace. You're not going to receive as much as the man, you know, I'm looking at there whose wife just got diagnosed with terminal cancer and, you know, she's got a couple months to live and they're using aggressive chemotherapy to try to keep her alive. What you get out of it is what you put into it, okay? Um, And there's enough grace in any sacrament to make you a saint today. We drink very, very shallowly of what God offers us. Okay. So please keep those two things in mind. Uh, we do have these sacraments. What is a sacrament? It's a, what's a sacrament? What's the word sacrament mean? It's a pledge. pledge. It's a promise. The grace is there. But how much of it do you take? Remember when we talked about purgatory? Well, how much you take depends on how much you put into it. It really, really does matter. Um, uh, so please keep that in mind. All right? um, Christ limits himself to our cooperation. You know, it would be like uh, you could have the world's best indie car driver. Who's, who's like a great indie car driver? Mario Andretti. Right? Um, if you put him in a AMC Gremlin, he's just not going to do very much. It's just the way it is. Dated yourself on that one? Yeah. Uh, I could talk about a Ford, an AMC Pacer, too. Um, the greatest cars ever made. Uh, um, Eight-track player standard, <laughs> but you know, if you if, if you put a, a novice driver like myself in a you know in a Formula One, I'm not going to be able to do very much good with it either. Christ is like the Christ is like the Mario Andretti, and he'll he'll work with as much as what you give him. Okay. Um, now, every sacrament has a matter and a form. This is important. Matter is the material. Form is the words. They come from Christ. That's where I said, I can't change it that it's two men or that it's a man and a woman for, for, uh, for matrimony. I can't change it that water is used for uh, baptism. I can't change it that oil is used for confirmation. There's a matter and there's a form. Matter is, very simply, easy to remember, material. Right? Matter is the material. Form are the words that are used. Um, if I do a baptism, I have to say the words that our Lord told us to use. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There were some people for a few years there back in the 70s and 80s, and they were trying to be a little bit more politically correct, and they were saying, I baptize you in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier. Because, you know, they don't want to attribute any maleness, you know, that kind of thing. Was the child baptized or not baptized? Not baptized. You might as well have baptized them with Coca-Cola. You're not baptized, right? Um, I already used my example of uh, coffee and donuts or pizza and beer. Why not? Um, why not? Uh, um, there's a basic matter and a form that you can't change. I'll tell you the basic matter and form of the Eucharist. This is my body. This is my blood. I can't change that. I'm not supposed to change any of the words in the Mass. But if you ever go to a Mass and they say something other than this is my body, this is my... Just get up and leave. You're wasting your time. It's not the Eucharist. Okay? Um, uh, and, that, and again, that gets back to the idea that Christ instituted this. Um, there's three sacraments that are the foundation of every Christian life. The sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. And that is what we are about to begin to learn. But do you think everybody has a basic grasp of what a sacrament is? I think if you think about it as something like uh, something like a souvenir 
uh, something like a medal, something like a like an engagement ring. If you think of it as something that's a physical thing that that means more than its physical value, but if you can think of that physical thing as instituted by Christ, if you think of that value as God's own life, God's own grace, um, then I think you've got the idea. That's why these things are so great. That's why they're so important. And if you ever want to really get through to somebody, you can keep this idea of sacramentality in mind. Uh, did I tell you the story about the the, the printing company, the printing house that used to print our used to print our. Uh, so I used to work for a pro-life group, and I had to send out the, the the letters, the acknowledgement letters for donations, and you'd take all this data and you'd mail it across town, and the printer would print all your letters for you. We were hiring this printer to print all of our letters for us, and he was doing a rotten job. He was delinquent, he was getting the addresses wrong, he was sending them out. We were going to fire him. Word got back to the printer in the printing house across town that we were going to fire him. So he did something real quick to try to save his job. He mailed all of us tickets to the Washington Capitals. And we thought... You scheming, conniving. You think you're going to save your job just because you sent us tickets to the Washington Capitals? You got another thing coming. But what the heck, let's all go to the game. So the whole office went to the game. We had a great time. Capitals won, lots of fun, all this. Guess what happened the next day? We kept them. (laughs) I'm telling you, if you want to get through to somebody, bake them a cake. Uh, Send them a card. Do something, right? some physical thing that conveys more than, you know, wrap up a gift that conveys more than just the... And and something about it just works because that's the way you're made. It's human nature. Make sense? Okay, God knows human nature and that's kind of what sacraments are except for it gives us his life. So let's look at baptism, okay? Baptism is the means by which God's grace enters the soul for the very first time. So I could have a question for you. You could believe with all of your heart that Jesus is God, and you could believe in every last thing Jesus says, and you could read the Bible, and you could pray, and you could weep tears of gratitude for all Jesus did for you. Um, But how does what Jesus did for you actually help you right now? Is it because of the intensity of your subjective personal experience? Is it because of the fervor of your prayer? Is it because of the, the depth of your faith? You want to know how it helps you right now? Baptism. That's where it all begins. Okay, that's where it all begins. Baptism is the sacrament by which you become, and I know this sounds kind of weird, you become like a cell in the body of Christ. There's one life one spiritual life that lives forever and it's not your life it's his life jesus god became man like we talked in our christ in our class on christ baptism is where you enter into that where the divine life is given to you okay that's how it all begins why do we need baptism well because of original sin we talked about that in our sin and grace class um but i always say original sin is the one Catholic belief that you don't need any faith to believe in. You know, I used to teach religion in high school, and I would begin every year by looking over all the kids and saying, raise your hand if this is a screwed up world. And every hand was in the air. 
you don't need any faith to know something's wrong that should be right with this world. Okay, that's original sin. Um, we were made to be in a state of union with God, peace with one another, peace with the world around us, and that's been broken. Now, the book of Genesis gives us the story of the sin of Adam, um, uh, the sin of Adam and Eve. Uh, and there's a lot of truth in that story. I make no statement as to whether those literally happened or not. Um, but there's a lot of truth in that story. First of all, the, the communality of sin. Notice it wasn't just Eve. It was Adam and Eve. Uh, notice, actually, ladies, here's the challenge on you. The primacy of the woman in the order of temptation and in the order of grace. Who does the evil one defeat first? The woman. Once he's got the woman in his pocket, the man is dead duck. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. And he had to really argue and work over the lady, right? That the evil one did. And she argued and she hemmed and she hawed. By the way, don't ever dialogue with evil. Eve dialogued with evil. You see how well that worked for her. She lost. She was sinless and living in a perfect world and she lost. So, you know, don't ever rationalize wrongdoing. Uh, but there was no dialogue. There was no fight with a guy. The fight was with a woman. And then as soon as the guy showed up, the woman was like, oh, here, eat this. And the guy was like, okay. Well, game over. Um, um, and it's, it's still really true. I mean, the virtue of a woman, man will go right along with her. If the woman's virtue is high, the man will go up where she is. If the woman's virtue is low, the man will go down where she is. There's a lot of, there's a lot of truth to, 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 to that story. But we know this much. It was, came from the tempting of Satan. It was a temptation. And everything about the temptation was a lie. You go back to the book of uh, Genesis and you ask to look at all the things that the evil, the evil one tempted Adam and Eve with. You know what's really interesting about all the things? Every single thing that the evil one said that would happen if they broke God's commandments were things that God was already going to give them. You will be like God, the evil one said. Do you realize God was already going to do that for us? That's called heaven. right? You will certainly not die. God was already going to deliver us from, from, from death. There was, never going to be any, there was never going to be any death in the original world. Everything that, that the evil one tempted was something God was already going to give him. But the essential temptation, people ask me this, what was the temptation, especially grade school students, what was the temptation of Adam and Eve? Was it sex? Was that, was that the temptation? It was not. Somehow the temptation was pride. And here's what I mean by pride. It's not I'm proud of my school, I'm proud of my country, I'm proud of my family. It's I think I know better than God. God gave me a commandment and I'm going to break it because I know better. That's pride. Somehow the temptation was a temptation to think you knew. And I already described to you about the forbidden fruit, didn't I? How it wasn't really an apple. Okay. All right. Now as a consequence of this, and we've talked about this one before, our relationship with God was broken. We weren't meant to be ignorant. We weren't meant to be lazy. We weren't meant to be prideful and selfish. Those are disorders that we all live with. Um, and now we have to struggle to do what's right, and it's hard to do what's right, and it's sacrifice to do what's right, and it's so easy to do what's wrong. But we have to, and that's called concupiscence. That's one of those polysyllabic words that you really ought to know. What's it called? This inclination to do what's wrong. What's it called? This inclination to sleep in. What's it called? This inclination to hit the drive-through whenever you're hungry. It's called concupiscence. All right, that's the. And you could be forgiven of original sin. And you'll fight against that for the rest of your life. Um. I've already talked about the communality of it in past classes, but it's good to review. You say, it isn't fair, I didn't do anything wrong. You're absolutely right. It isn't fair, and you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't 
do anything wrong, you are born this way. However, that is just human nature. And the good news is, you didn't die on a cross either. You can say, well, I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I didn't die on a cross. I shouldn't, I shouldn't get my sins forgiven. You're funny how nobody ever says that. Right? But all I want to say is, because you're a human being, what we do affects others. And that one cuts both ways. Right? That one cuts both ways. Um, so what we have here is the situation in which we're cut off, and I've already talked about this in the sin and grace class, you can't redeem yourself. Only God can do it, and that's who Jesus was, is. The one who became man because we couldn't redeem ourselves. And baptism is where it all begins. Right? God and man reconciled together by Christ our Lord. Baptism is the reunion of God. That's what... You know, most people celebrate their wedding day as the most important day of their lives. I will put up no argument that it is an extremely important day, right? Here's your life partner, and uh, all your friends are there, and it's kind of like the culmination of all your life has been. Very, very important day. However, if we were perfectly spiritually purified people, we would recognize that the most important day of our life was our baptism. That was actually the day God gave you the greatest gift he can possibly give you. And if you die after you're baptized and you don't commit any other sins, okay, what happens to you? You go straight to heaven. Why? Because you just became united with Jesus Christ. And Jesus doesn't have any sin. Now, you want to commit sin on your own? That's your own business. But I was in the hospital once, and there was a man who was 80-something, maybe even 90-something, and he'd never been baptized. Did I tell you the story? Never been baptized. And it's like, uh, you know... I want to pray together. Father, i got to tell you, I've never been baptized. Have you never been baptized? No, I never. But do you want to be baptized? It was actually, yeah, you know. Um, it's kind of scary. I'm not 80, what, 90, I forget what old it was. 80-something, 90, can't remember. Very old. Um, and, you know, one starts thinking about eternity, and I'm going to check out soon, so I want to be baptized. So I baptized him, and I told him that all of his sins were forgiven. All of his sins were forgiven. And he goes, all of them? I say, all of them. He goes, Father... I was in the Navy. <laughs> no, they're all forgiven, I promise. Now, you want to go sin after that? That's your business. I had one woman, I baptized her, and she died the next day. And I did her funeral. And I got news for you. She went straight to heaven. No matter what she did in life. You say, oh, that's too good to be true. What I'd like to tell you is God is goodness. God is truth. Therefore, it's so good, it must be true. Okay? And it is true. Um, uh, now, concupiscence remains. You still struggle. Um, uh, there will still be this inclination to do the wrong thing. Grace helps us in that struggle. That struggle is the essence of the spiritual life. But please understand, the first consequence of baptism is the forgiveness of all of your sins, including original sin. Now, I already told you that it, it makes you something that you weren't before. You receive God's own grace, God's own life, God's own nature. Jesus had human nature. Jesus had divine nature. You got human nature. But do you realize that after baptism, you have divine nature too? That's how we call you a child of God. An adopted child of God. Okay, This is important stuff. Uh, this is the foundation of the... And I mean, you can really start to get into this. The reason why... We talk about human dignity. The reason why we talk about the basic goodness of all people and human dignity, you realize that's a fundamentally Christian concept? 
the less Christian the world becomes, the more it will become clear that paganism is cruel because it doesn't have this idea, which might sound like something you've heard in catechism class or something you've heard in your Sunday school teacher tell you, but it has deep, profound compl complications when you recognize that I see you and I, I see a spark of the divine in you because you were baptized, and I know that. You are God's, God's chosen one, an adopted son of God, an heir to the kingdom of heaven, and given sanctifying grace. You're given virtues at baptism. You're given the virtue of faith, believing what God has revealed and the authority of the one who revealed it. You're given hope. Trust that God will provide everything you need, spiritually and physically. Couldn't we all use a little bit more of that? I mean, don't let these words wash over your, over your mind without sinking in. If you could, if I could, if you could deepen your hope, everything you need spiritually, you're going to get it. Everything you need physically, you're going to get it. What happens to your worry? It's gone. It's gone. You got that at baptism. Now all you got to do is deepen it. That's the spiritual life. You're given charity. You can love God above everything else in this world. And love your neighbor as yourself for love of him. Remember when I talked about heaven and hell? And I said, what's the soul who goes to heaven? Very simply, alive with God's grace. They love everything in this world for the sake of God. And nothing apart from God for its own sake. Nothing stands between them and, and heaven. Their, their, their charity is perfect. Who goes to purgatory? They love God, but they love other things in this world. And they don't really love them for God's own sake. And they got mixed love. And it's not quite pure. Um, um, but... That's the gift. Of, that's the gift. You're given gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom and counsel, knowledge, and understanding, and piety and fear of the Lord, and fortitude. All described there in your notes. Okay. This is what it means to belong to the church. This is what it means to be. A, it's why it's never just a club. It's not an organization. It's an organism. It's not like you're a member of the church, like you're a member of the Elks Club. It's a closeness deeper than any human relationship because you're alive with Jesus' own life. Now here's something else to keep in mind. We'll get to this when we talk about the priesthood later. This might sound kind of strange. you are become a member of the common priesthood of all believers. What's a priest? I'll give you a quick definition. Just so it'll sink in the next time you hear it. A priest is a mediator between God and man who brings about a union between God and man by means of sacrifice. That's what a priest is, a mediator, a go-between between God and man, who brings about a union between God and man by means of sacrifice. Who's the one priest who did that more than anybody else? Jesus did it. He was God and man, and he brought about a union between God and man by means of sacrifice. Isn't it interesting how sacrifice, it's almost written in your genetics <clears throat> that you already know <clears throat> that if something's wrong with you, but that somehow you need to make a sacrifice to make it right. I told you the story about the Crow Indians. Did I tell you the story about the Crow and Sacrifice Cliff? Yeah, where they yeah. rode off. Where they rode off. Yeah. It's almost like instinctively they knew. And nobody evangelized them. They never heard of the gospel before. But they knew that something was wrong between them and the gods because they all had smallpox. And they had, there had to be a blood sacrifice for this. Nobody. It's almost like we know that. What we want to say is, Jesus was already the blood sacrifice. He already did it. Okay, but because you're baptized, now here's my point, because you're baptized, your sacrifices matter. Your sacrifices matter because they're united to his. 
So if you're suffering something, you ever heard of offering it up? This is what it means. You want to help somebody? You want to help somebody you care about? Don't waste your sufferings. They're united to Jesus Christ. Don't waste them. Offer them up. And how do you offer them up? What does that mean? My mother used to tell me, I'd stub my toe as a child. She'd say, offer it up. I'd say, what the heck does that mean? If I don't want it, why does God want it? What the heck does that mean? Here's how you offer it up. It's really simple. You make a little tiny prayer. And you say, Lord, I offer this to you. I unite this to Jesus' suffering on the cross. That's, that's what it means to offer it up. Suddenly, it actually is, because you were baptized, part of what Jesus suffered when he died on the cross. And it has value because his sacrifice has value. So you want to help somebody who's struggling? Having a hard day? Offer it up. Make a prayer intention for that person who's struggling. Um, you, you want to help somebody who's teetering on the edge of suicide or they're thinking about abandoning their faith or whatever it might be? Offer it up. And by the way, this is what it means to attend Mass. People attend Mass and that what they want to do is they want to take every single suffering and hardship of their life and put it right up there on the altar together with the priest and praying through the priest because that is, we'll talk about this when we talk about our Mass class, that is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross made present. That's what, that's what the Mass is. So that's how you really pray Mass. Take every hardship and difficulty in your life, bring it into the church and unite it to the suffering of Christ on the cross and I get letters, and people write to me, and they say, Father, you'll never believe what just happened. You know, my brother, my sister, whatever, they just complete turnaround. That's what God's grace does to people. It just, it floods them with the right disposition to help them make the right choice. It gives them an unfair advantage in life. You want your loved ones to have that unfair advantage. That's what it means. And that's because of baptism, right? Because otherwise, it's just you. And your stupid little bad hair day, or your hangnail, or your red light or your fender bender, whatever it might be. It's you and your stupid little suffering, which really doesn't change the world very much, but Jesus' suffering does. And the fact that yours is united to his, now it gives it a tremendous amount of value. So, all because of baptism. Make sense? An indelible mark on your soul. You might have heard that before. Once you're baptized, you can never be unbaptized. You can never be rebaptized. What's the indelible mark on your soul? It means you belong to Jesus. You can commit all the sins in the world. You can be Adolf Hitler and you can't, you can't get yourself unbaptized. You can never reverse it. Okay? It can't be repeated. And if somebody hasn't been baptized before, and I do this at RCIA, they'll say, I, I, haven't, I can't find my baptismal certificate. And I have absolutely zero proof that I've been baptized. I'll say, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have what's called a conditional baptism. And I'll say, if you have not been baptized before, then I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that way I just erase all doubt. Uh, it can't be repeated. It can't be undone. And because this, you actually are a member of the body of Christ, once that's done, it's permanent. Okay? The essential form and matter, you have to use these words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and you have to use water. I can't baptize you with milk. I can't baptize you with Coca-Cola. If you're interested in these little split hairs, um, I can baptize you with something that's water and that has extra stuff in it. Like, for example, and this might sound really strange, well, Coca-Cola isn't water, but coffee is. It's just water with stuff in it. Can I baptize you with muddy water? Yes, yeah. If I had to, I could. Can I baptize you with coffee? Yeah. Now, um, this is being recorded, and I'm going to get myself in trouble, but if I were a canon lawyer, I could say that coffee is water. It's just water with pieces of coffee in it. 
It's not preferable, but in an extreme emergency, it probably would work. But I can't baptize you with milk. Never was water, never has been water. I can't baptize you. I, I, I draw the line of Coca-Cola, right? There, it, it's an ingredient, but it's not water, okay? I can't ba- baptize you with shoe polish. Not that you'd want it to happen. But, so anyway, I'm getting, I'm getting far afield in this. Um, in the ancient church, they used to baptize adults. But then St. Paul tells us that they'd show up at houses and they baptize whole households, which means even the screaming little ones, right? And it's almost like if they don't scream now at baptism, it's not valid. Mm-hmm. Every baptism is always, you're trying your best to say all the words and pray and little things screaming in your face. Um, and that's just the way it is. Um, people say, how do you baptize infants? They can't have any faith. They're baptized in the faith of the church that their parents are going to raise them in. And it's a sheer, unmerited gratuity. Can I baptize somebody who's unconscious? Yes, I can, as long as, you know, as, 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 long as, as long as they want it. Can I baptize a parent? Can I baptize a child? Yes, as long as the parents want it. Okay. Uh, because that's the faith in which the child is going to be raised. A uh, little question for you about sponsors or godparents. A sponsor is an example. A godparent is an example. Same word, sponsor, godparent, same word is an example. They're a role model. People think, what's a, what's a godparent? What, what's a godparent? Oh, that's the person who's going to raise the child if something happens to the parents. No, it's not. A godparent has absolutely zero legal standing. A godparent is a role model. They're an example of what it means to be a good Catholic. And there's some basics. Okay, uh, If anybody here is going to be baptized, they've got to get themselves a sponsor for baptism. The basics are you got to yourself be a practicing Catholic, which means if you're married, you're married in the church, which means that you yourself are going to church on Sunday, which means you yourself have received baptism, confirmation, and communion, and you should be over the age of 16. Okay, um, So that's what a sponsor is, a role model. A, little, a, a well-known fact, anybody can baptize. How many of you already knew that? Most people already know that. Somehow, it seems it's a popular thing to know. However, you don't want to baptize somebody unless it's an absolute screaming emergency. I knew a girl. i tell you about the girl I knew who baptized her boyfriend. girl baptized her boyfriend in the kitchen sink. Oh, anybody can baptize. I learned it in school. So she takes out water and she says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Question, was the kid baptized? Yep. Water, yeah. Yep. She had the intention to do what the church intended to do. She used water. She used the right words. But the trouble is that guy now has to go through the rest of his life. He wants to get married. The priest says, can I see a baptismal certificate? Well, when I was 16, I was going out with this girl, and she baptized me in the kitchen sink. Oh, can you prove it? Well, I don't know. I can try to find out. I can try to look her up on Facebook, I guess. Do you remember it yet? Um, it, so don't let the priest do it, okay? Let the priest do it. Um, now, a couple of interesting questions. Uh, what happens if somebody wants to be baptized and they die before they're baptized? I used to use this as a hypothetical example. Um, what if there was a baptism and there was an earthquake and before the priest could pour the water over the baby's head, the church caves in and everybody in the church dies? Question, was there a baptism that day? With the intention, yes. Was there a baptism? Mm-hmm. I guess not. No, there was not a baptism. Was there an intention for baptism? Yes. yes. Was the sacrament of baptism celebrated? Almost. No. It's, it's, it's a, 
it's a ceremony, either was or it wasn't. And the answer is no. But the church said from an early age that we're, we're going to teach something here. That there's a circumstance in which, two circumstances in which we say God definitely gives us grace even though the sacrament wasn't celebrated. And they were both with regard to baptism. One was called a baptism of blood. And people would be just like you and they'd be learning the faith in the ancient days and they'd be killed before they could receive their sacraments. What we're going through right now has been going on since the beginning of the church. It's just that the process used to take two years. You guys get it in you know, 10 lessons or 12 lessons. It used to take two years. And they'd be killed by the Roman authorities. And it was unconscionable that after they shed their blood for love of Christ that they wouldn't go to heaven because they weren't baptized. So the church called it a baptism of blood. Is it a sacrament? It's not. But we are saying that it has the effects of a sacrament. What's the word sacrament mean? Pledge. Pledge. So the sacrament never happened. But we are saying that the effects happened. There's another one. It was called baptism of desire. And that's the example of the church and the earthquake. And by the way, in 2017, there was an earthquake in Mexico City. And there was a baptism going on in a church. And the church caved in. And my hypothetical example happened. It actually happened. Was the kid baptized? He was not. Was it a baptism of desire? Yep. Was the grace given? Yes. Yes, it was. Okay. Now, here's one last thing. I have to include this just for continuity's sake. What about a child who died without baptism? And there's no evidence that it was ever a baptism of desire. Now, the child, little innocent baby, died. And, I don't know, maybe this innocent baby grew up in the Ice Age, right? Or something like that. There was no, or this baby was a, a different religion. And there was no baptism. There was no, what happens? The baby go to hell because the baby wasn't baptized? Um, the church does not say the baby goes to hell because the baby wasn't baptized. However, we also don't say that just because the baby was a baby, just because the baby was innocent, that, well, baptism basically isn't needed because babies are so cute. What we basically do, we, just, we say we, we don't know. The church really, 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 really almost says, yeah, it's like a baptism of desire. But we, the words that are used in the catechism are they're in the hands of God. We leave it at that. Okay? They're in the hands of God. Would that be the same as a Buddhist or a Shinto? Um, any other religion kind of thing. What happens if a little baby dies? Innocent little baby, never knew any. Does the baby go to hell because they're never baptized? Uh, we do not say the baby goes to hell. However, you have to understand this almost like as a theological fine point. If I say the baby goes to heaven and there's no intention of baptism, then what I've just said is the baptism isn't really necessary. And I don't want to say baptism isn't really necessary, so I stop short of saying that. If you understand that, you understand where we are. It's like I want to say it, but I can't say it without negating baptism. So it's one of those times when the church kind of says, you know what, we're just not going to answer that question. We're going to say pass, but we don't answer that question. Okay. Now, the reason why I spent so much time on baptism is because if you understand baptism, you understand confirmation. Okay. Everybody here is here for confirmation. But confirmation is the strengthening of what baptism began. That's what confirmation is. So everything that I just got finished saying, confirmation strengthens and completes it. It's a funny thing, but Jesus created a sacrament that doesn't have its full effect until it's completed. The sacrament that does not have its full effect until it's completed is baptism. The completion of the ba baptism is confirmation. What is confirmation? It strengthens, and I'm going to ask you this, preview, 
when you come for your interviews before sacraments, I'm going to ask you this. What does confirmation do? Here's your answer. It strengthens and completes what baptism began. Now, if I ask most people what does confirmation do, you know what they'll tell me? They'll tell me confirmation makes you an adult in the church because they know what a bar mitzvah is. And a bar mitzvah makes you an adult in the Jewish community. Or they know what a debutante is. And a debutante makes you an adult in high society. Does confirmation make you an adult in the church? Yes or no? And the answer is no. It, does, it strengthens and completes what baptism began. Here, let me answer that question for you. Here's what makes you an adult in the church. Ladies, you became an adult in the church when you turned 14. Gentlemen, you became an adult in the church when you turned 16. Isn't it interesting that even the church recognizes that women grow up faster and reach maturity at an earlier age? But please don't think that confirmation makes you an adult in the church, okay? Now, um, if you want baptism to have its full effect, you must receive confirmation, which means there's something lacking in your faith, in your hope, in your charity. It means there's something lacking in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, your fortitude, your fear of the Lord, your piety, your wisdom, your counsel. There's something that needs to be strengthened and completed. That's what confirmation does. Now, the first ever confirmation was Pentecost. Who's ever heard of Pentecost? Pentecost, I've got it here in your notes, okay? Pentecost was, and it's written in the Acts of the Apostles, originally a Jewish feast in which they would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate seven weeks since Passover. And it turns out that seven weeks since Jesus died, uh, on the 50th day, hence the name Pentecost, Jesus promised he'd send his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came. And your story is recounted here in your notes. You might have heard this before, but they're gathered for the Feast of Pentecost, and suddenly like a sound like a rushing wind enters into the room, and visible tongues of fire appear above their heads. Have you heard this before? It's Pentecost. It happened to the apostles. It happened to the Blessed Mother. And as soon as this happened, they were filled with something they were never filled with before. They were filled with courage and strength, confidence and peace. They were huddled up together on the first day of that first Pentecost for fear of their lives. I don't know what it's like to fear for my life. I hope I never find out. But I will tell you this. If I'm ever afraid for my life, the last thing I would ever want to do is run out and, and stand on a balcony and start yelling to the public down below. But that's what the apostles did. And they started proclaiming the gospel. Something hit them. Something that made all their fear go away. Even their own fear of death, fear of their safety, disappeared. And they went to this otherwise completely reckless behavior. And, and Peter went out on the balcony with crowds of people down below him. A man with a, a price on his head. A man slated for death. He said, people of Jerusalem, listen to what I have to say. And he preached the gospel for the first time. And they say 3,000 people were asked to be baptized that day. He was so convincing. Stories recounted here in your notes. He spoke one language. But everybody down below heard him regardless of what, where in the world they were from. That was a miracle. Who's ever heard of the Tower of Babel? What happened at the Tower of Babel? They went up to build the tallest tower in the world to find their way up to God. When they came back down, what happened to their speech? They couldn't understand each other. Now here's 
the apostles and they're on top of a different mountain, Mount Zion, the highest point in Jerusalem. They speak one language and everybody understands them. It was the reversal of the Tower of Babel. It was as if God said, there's one language that everyone's going to understand. The language of the Spirit. The language of charity. Everyone speaks it. And with it, you'll lead the world back to God. It'll be the reversal of man's pride. That was Pentecost. The birthday of the church, the first ever Pentecost. The first ever confirmation was Pentecost. You want to know what confirmation is going to do to you? Take a look at what happened on Pentecost. Everything the apostles needed, they received. It's going to be different for every single one of you. I can tell you a personal story. The day I was confirmed, it was a long time ago, it was November of 1983. Something happened to me. And I felt different. I'll tell you what it felt like. I felt like someone put the hand on my shoulder. And I'll tell you something else that might sound kind of creepy. It's still there. It's never gone away, not for one day. I've always taken it to be like the hand of God and the sense that he's with me. It's never gone away, not for one single day. It was a gift I received. It was something I needed. I needed to know God was with me and that I was never alone. Something like that will happen to you. The only difference will be, it'll be what you need. Your confirmation. Okay? The apostles got what they needed. They had to proclaim the gospel. They were given a really strong faith. So what was the first ever confirmation? Pentecost. Pentecost. Okay. Um, the essential rite of confirmation is with the oil of chrism. The words are, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And a seal symbolizes you belong to Christ. Soldiers carry the seal of their leader. Confirmation has the effects. Baptismal grace is deepened and strengthened. Your union with Christ, which I told you about is baptism, is even deeper. Remember I said baptism makes you a member of the church? You're now even more completely a member of the church. All those gifts of the Holy Spirit, piety, fortitude, counsel, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, fear of the Lord, they're deepened. Okay. You've received the grace that you need to defend the faith by word and action. To meet the challenges of living in this modern world, an indelible mark on your soul. Once again, it can't be repeated. It can't be undone. It deepens that priesthood of the faithful. Now you know why I went through all that stuff when I talked about baptism. Now I'm just repeating it and strengthening it. Um, there is one thing to understand. Go back to what I said about sacraments. Ex opere operantis. It matters what you do. I like to think about sacraments, of the sacrament of confirmation. One of my images for it is a bookend because it holds everything in place, right? You need both bookends, baptism and confirmation. Another image I like to use for confirmation is it's a gym membership. You got everything you need, but you still got to get out there and use it, right? Merry Christmas, here's your gym membership. Terrific, uh, now I'm in shape. Pass the beer, right? Pass the cupcakes, whatever it might be. Pass the chili cheese fries. Um, no, you actually have to do something about it. Um, you have to be in a state of grace to receive, to receive confirmation. And that is why you have to go to confession first. We'll talk about that next week. Okay? Um, the usual minister of confirmation is the bishop because you're in union with the entire church and the bishop represents the entire church. But for RCIA candidates and the Easter Vigil, uh, your local priest gets delegated by the bishop to offer confirmation. Um, and I knew this one took a long time, but that's pretty good. We managed How to get it all do done. How do you do confession? 